And so that last little bit of, of Acts 2, 5 through 12 is what he helped us see, right? There's people, if you think about Pentecost, there's people from all over the region, all over the world, the known world at that time, gathering into Jerusalem. And so Pentecost is really this time that can get a little bit confusing for us this far away from the cross and this far away uh, from that moment in time. It's, it's probably the, one of the most neglected parts of the Christian calendar. When we think about Christian calendar, the Christian calendar starts with Advent. We all know about Advent. We all celebrate the coming King uh, the coming baby king in Jesus, right? We, we kind of know what Epiphany is. Sometimes we even skip it on the church calendar. Then we get into Lent and then Good Friday and Easter. We know those. And then we get into uh, really the, the season of Eastertide. And now here we are after the Ascension is Pentecost. And when I sat down with a friend of mine this week, I said, hey man, do you know what Pentecost is? And he was like, uh, and he just kind of did one of these numbers, like staring up into the ceiling like we do when we're in high school, where we know we don't know the answer, but we're just going to sit here and go, I just, it's up there somewhere. I know I'll find it at some point. I go, all right, man, it's just, it's the Holy Spirit, right? It's when the Holy Spirit comes into people, like believers in Jesus are now experiencing God in a new and different way that they ever did in all of history. He's like, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was like, okay, Kurt, we're on the same page. But it's either a thing that we either uh, distance ourselves from because of misunderstanding or we distort it because of misunderstanding. So we dis distance ourselves from Pentecost because we might not identify as Pentecostals, right? There's a whole denomination, several denominations that come out of or that uh, have their understanding of the Spirit uh, to be so central to how they identify as a believer that they've created an entire denomination, not just a church, but many churches all throughout the world. And so we might think, well, that's not me. I don't have the spirit uh, in these ways, like speaking in tongues, so I'm going to distance myself. The other thing that we may do is that we distort it and we think, well, I, I need to somehow replicate some of the things here as some sort of a formula, and we may distort what this experience is, and we try to replicate it. But I can just tell you now, this is a supernatural moment in history that God put in the church calendar to give birth to the church that, that, that it's special. It's much like your your wedding day, it was special. You still have a marriage, but I'm not gonna go back and try and relive my wedding day every day. Instead, I celebrate the fact that I am married, that I did have a wedding day, and I live in that new reality in the everyday. And so when we think about Pentecost, I want us to reframe our minds around what the scriptures actually teach us about God's character. And I think Joseph said it beautifully, he's making good on a promise. He's making good on the promise to be with us in ways that we would have never understood otherwise. And if you remember what we just read, it ends with, what does this mean? It's a great ending, I think, to a passage uh, where we just go, man, they're all perplexed. They're all trying to figure out what this wind is all about and the fire and the tongues and the languages. And people are hearing the gospel in their native tongue. And they're going, these guys are fishermen. They're not supposed to be able to do this. The next verse is, are these guys drunk? Literally in verse 13. They must be drinking wine. Peter stands up right after that. He goes, it's nine in the morning. We're not drunk. We got the spirit in us and we're free. And it's pretty amazing when you start to think about these guys that were holed up, they were afraid. If you think about Jesus raising from the dead, he, 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 before he raised from the dead, right, he's, he's, all the disciples are afraid, they're holed up, 
They're not bold. They're not teachers that change the world yet. They're, they're, they think they're next. Jesus raises from the grave. They're still not proclaiming the gospel yet. Instead, they're still following Jesus' instructions and following him all over uh, the area as he uh, uh, reveals himself to 500 people, 1 Corinthians says. So over 40 days, over now 50 days, or, or 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus raises from the, uh, from, from the earth into heaven. Those 40 days, he is revealing himself to over 500 people, telling them about the kingdom of God. And of course, right before he goes to heaven, in Acts chapter 1, which we read a little bit of that, right before he goes to heaven, the disciples look at Jesus and they go, is it now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I love what Tim Keller says. He said, there are more uh, theological fallacies in that question in those five or six words than any other in Scripture. That right now, you're going right to restore the kingdom only to Israel. And they still didn't quite get what God was up to. And yet now we have an ascended Jesus who is making good on the promise to send his spirit on the earth to a bunch of men and women who just, quite frankly, didn't get it yet. And if you put yourself in their position, um, we might find ourselves having a little bit more compassion on them. But I'll talk about that in a moment. This Feast of Weeks is what was known as Pentecost. Feast, the Feast of Weeks was 50 days after pa Passover, according to the Jewish calendar. And so you see many people coming from all over the world into Jerusalem for this festival, much like they just did for the Passover. Maybe not as popular as the Passover, but certainly a function in a time when people from all over the world were coming in to worship the Jewish God and God makes good on a promise during that time when more people from all kinds of different backgrounds are there and speak their language, right? Uh, the Feast of Weeks had its origins to celebrate the first fruit of the harvest and yet later Israel celebrated this giving as the God's law, that the Feast of Weeks would be the giving of God's law on Sinai during the Feast of Weeks when Moses went up the mountain to the Lord, met with him in a cloud of fire and received the law. This leads us to really where we're headed today. We start thinking about the, the, the Jewish tradition of the Feast of Weeks and how God fulfills uh, everything and more that God did in history through Pentecost. It truly will blow your mind. But let's just see this a little bit. So let's look at the four benefits of Pentecost. And I have longer points on the screen, but I actually I probably should have rewrote this and let Alan know. It could just be the four P's of Pentecost. There's a lot of P's today. The four P's of Pentecost. Number one, it is presence. That God's spirit, what does it mean that God sent his spirit to his people? Yes, he, he, he fulfilled a promise, but what does it mean further? What is that promise? And that is this, first, God's spirit is God's presence in his people. On the last night that Jesus was here before he died, in John 16, he's teaching his disciples about this great helper that would come. If you think about um, what you would have probably been like during that time, it was probably a whole lot like what they were like. And one of the things that would have made me look at Jesus with only one eyebrow up, like you guys all hear from, see from me every once in a while over lunch or whatever. Last night I was having, visiting with some leaders and the person looked at me and goes, oh, you just did your eyebrow thing. Um, because when I see, hear a little bit of something different, I might pull an eyebrow up or go all the way. But one of the things that would have done that with the disciples, it was in Jesus says this out of John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage it is to your advantage that I go away. 
Can you think about that? If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, the spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want you to think about your history. And I'll, I'll bet you it's a little bit different than their history. You see, the mindset of the disciples was centuries of oppression, centuries of slavery and exile and violence and injustice. And the Romans were brutal rulers over Jerusalem. Brutal. And now the Messiah is here. The, the, the chosen one who's going to who was chosen and promised to deliver us from all of our oppression, all of our slavery, all of our injustice. He's going to establish God's kingdom on the earth. I'm staring at him. I'm eating meals with him. I've been with him for three days. And he keeps telling me he's going to leave. He keeps telling me that it's going to be better that he dies and goes away. I don't know about you, but i got a hard time believing that it's better some days that Jesus isn't here. Man, I'd just rather have Jesus here. You know, he wouldn't be in Richmond. Wouldn't be in Texas. No matter how many times we sing God bless Texas at the Astros game in the seventh inning, he wouldn't be here. He would be where? He'd be in Jerusalem. He'd be reigning and ruling on a, a local throne on the earth, and we in America would have to go fly and make our pilgrimage to go see Jesus, like every other religion on the planet, by the way to go pay our homage to our king and go back home. You see, that's why he says, it will be to your advantage that I go away, that I ascend to the right hand of the Father, because I'm not going to be here on earth during this time. I'm going to be in heaven, reigning and ruling over every difficulty, over every victory. He's in control. He's interceding with the Father, it said, the scriptures say to us. So he's praying for us as we're going through whatever we're going through. The king of the universe, Jesus himself, is praying for you. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. But when I first hear that, if I'm a disciple, I raise my eyebrow a little bit. And I go, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Help me understand. And of course, they don't understand. Not until many days later, right? And Jesus sends the Spirit, and all of a sudden, they're still perplexed, trying to make sure and figure out what's going on. But we have the advantage of looking at all of Scripture and looking back and go, what does this mean? Well, I'll tell you. Again, God's presence is in his people. If you look at the Old Testament and you look at this thing called fire, right? One of the things that we see in Acts 2 is that there are tongues of fire that come upon uh, every person in the room. When you look at fire in the Old Testament, you just look at Moses' life, what you will find is that God reveals himself through fire. His presence is made known in fire. The burning bush, it was burning. Atop Mount Sinai, what you find is that the earth, the mountain is quaking and the top where Moses is, is on fire. I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing when I start thinking about that. When you look at the end of the Exodus, what do you see? You see fire in the tabernacle, that God would make known his manifest presence, his glory in the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and it's through fire. Read it, for, read it with me. Exodus 40, 38. It's the end of the book of Exodus, the end of their journey. And how does it all culminate? What does it all climax to? It is the presence of God and fire. And look at what it says. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their Journeys wherever they went and they set up their 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 portable church, 
right? We're not the first church plan in the world that's got to set up and tear down in inconvenient times. It's been going on all the way back to Exodus with the tabernacle. But every, one, every time that they would go and they would set up and they would tear down, the fire of the Lord would land in the tabernacle. Oh, that's my prayer. That's our prayer. Every week, the fire, the presence of God would meet us where we are. And indeed, he has by his spirit. He's with us. The fire was the presence of God assuring his people, and he assures us just like he assured them through all our journeys. If you look not just at the Old Testament, look at Jesus, right? And as powerful as he was, again, 100% God and 100% human, it was better for him to ascend so that he's not just in Jerusalem, but reigning and ruling from heaven. And so through his absence, his presence comes by his spirit. And where does the spirit reside? Where does the spirit go? It's not in a tabernacle somewhere. It's not in a place like today, Chris and I talked about, we could sing, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Come flood the atmosphere. And we, you know why we didn't sing it? Because it's theologically inaccurate. The spirit of God doesn't flood an atmosphere anymore. He is in your heart. Way better. He's not out here where we can, ooh, let me get some spirit. He's in us. He lives inside of our hearts, reigning and ruling if we'll let him over our lives, assuring us of his presence by the fire of his presence in our hearts. It should burn within us. Isn't that what we saw on the road to Emmaus? And when he explained the scriptures, my heart was on fire because God's presence was there. God's presence was there. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, do you not know that you are, you are God's temple? That great big thing that they spent a lot of money building back in the day that, that, like, that was in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple that got torn down and built back up and torn down and built back up and then torn down and never built back up. God is not interested in building that building back up because he's building you up. You are God's temple, it says. And that God's spirit dwells in you. His manifest glory presence is in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God would destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Rest assured, God is not absent in your troubles. When he says, behold, I will be with you even to the end of the age, it is because the spirit of God has chosen to rest inside of you, never to depart. And that's one of the main distinguishes of New Testament and Old. Whereas he came upon Saul and left Saul, he will never leave you. He is dwelling there. It is his dwelling place. It is his temple where he has chosen to live forever. So if you're a believer in the house, this is one of the main distinctives of those who follow Jesus. And if you're not a believer in the house, this is the, one of the main things that the people that are next to you, that invited you, want you to experience that burning, that presence. It's way different. It's way different. I hope you see how, how this is truly better for us, right? That God's presence was limited to one person with Moses at the top of a mountain. And now God's spirit has come down the mountain to every person. Everyone would experience that presence with the Lord. That God's presence was, was not just limited to one person and now is given to all who believe. It was also went limited to one place, the temple or the tabernacle. And now that place is your heart. Again, this means that we are never alone in our journey, just like the people of Israel were never alone in their journey. 
The same God now who has resurrected Jesus now lives in us. And so the second P of Pentecost, not just presence, but power. Oh, man. Let's talk about some power right here. God's spirit empowers his people. You see, the presence of God means that we have a power that we used to not have access to. And you might think to yourself, what kind of power? We read it earlier. Romans 8, 11 says that we have the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead who now lives in our hearts. What kind of power? Resurrection power. Well, what's the limit of resurrection power? None. Zero. It defeated death. And that's the same power that's in every believer. And you may be asking yourself, well, what can I do with that kind of power? And the first thing, contextually, you might be thinking of, well, I can speak in tongues in that power. We're going to talk about tongues in a minute. So let me just, let me, let me table that for my third P. Okay. That's one thing that you could do. But the power of the presence of God does something which history had never seen before Pentecost in the first century. I think what's most obvious for us that we have to see is, yes, tongues, but also, and we'll talk about that, but also for the first time in history is a united people of faith from every tribe, tongue, and language. That the multiracial, diverse church was birthed on Acts two, in Acts 2 on Pentecost, and it was never done before. The Romans worshipped Roman gods. The Greeks worshipped Roman gods. The Babylonians worshipped Babylonian gods. Romans, Romans, Greeks, Greeks, Babylonians, Babylonians. Jews worshipped Yahweh, the Jewish God. It is not until the Spirit of God comes upon the earth in his people that now all of a sudden we see people from every tribe, tongue, and language being multicultural in one place, worshipping the same God by the same Spirit. Something that had never been done before, God births on that day. And we see it again in heaven, right? We see it again around the throne room of God that every tribe, tongue, and, and nation is singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, you might think to yourself, well, this is really not a big deal. But I can tell you, as someone who really desires diversity, really desires multi-ethnicity in their church, but also diversity isn't just limited to different ethnicities, there's also a different uh, a diversity of personality, of, of gender, of political affiliation, of like if we start just homogenizing life, we're out of step with the kind of presence that the Spirit wants to put in the church. So if we start picking and choosing people to hang out with based on whether or not they annoy us, we're, we're out of step. I'm just telling y'all right now, as we think about neighborhood groups in the next season of life, when we think about doing life together in the next season of life, what will be real easy coming out of Corona is just procure what we're going to opt in and opt out of. Because that's what we've been doing. I'm going to opt out of that. I'm a little not, not uh, certain about the safety in that place. And so I'm opting out. You can easily translate that into our spirit and in our spiritual lives and go, you're really not, I don't know if I'm really, you're a safe person. I'm going to opt out of you. I'm going to opt out. I'm going to put my mask on around you. I'm not talking about a mask. I'm talking about good, blessed, highly favored. Amen and praise God. <laughs> right? We know what that looks like. We know what that feels like. And I'm telling you, that is a danger for us as we get going. Not just ethnicity, right? Because here's the deal. It takes supernatural power to build a church that's diverse. 
It just does. We think it's going to be easy. We go, oh, well, we should just be more diverse. It takes supernatural power to make it happen. And that means that it's you. It's not just leaders. It's not just, oh, what we want to do or what we value. It means that I've got to supernaturally bear with this other person that I disagree with. Oh, you just said something nonsensical politically. It's not the most important thing. We're going to be okay. Oh, you just said something that offends me as a woman or as a man. It's going to be all right. Ask for clarity. Get some certainty. Like, engage the person like Jesus engages you. Like, be patient with one another because it takes the power of God to be able to do this. Not gender, not ethnicity, personality, preferences, affinity, political alignment, gifting, right? It all requires for us to have supernatural power by the presence of God to bear with one another, to, to stick around, to commit to one another. The Bible calls it covenanted relationships, that it costs you something to be in relationship with that other person. There's commitment here. You ever think that Jesus knew that this was going to be difficult? You ever think that Jesus knew that, like, man, do you realize how difficult it is to do, to do church with people, to do neighbor group, to do, like, dig into each other's lives? You ever, like, Jesus, did you know this was going to be that messy? Well, his final prayer would seem to indicate. John 17, verse 20 to 23 says this. Jesus is praying, and he's praying in the presence of his disciples to his Father, and he says this, I do not ask for these only, these guys that are left, these 11. I'm not asking just for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. He's praying for you the last night that he's here on the earth. And he says, I'm asking uh, that, that for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, unified. Just as you, Father, are in me and I and you, that they also may be in us, an invitation to participate in the Trinity itself. So that the world, why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. We want to be missional? Let's be united. We want to, we want to make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our networks, and in the nations. Let's be united around King Jesus. It's not, let's, let's quit thinking about all the things that make us different and start thinking and dwelling on the thing that makes us the same. And that is we're brothers and sisters of the king. Now we're going to sit. I was talking to a friend this week. They're going through all kinds of chaos with another believer. And I just laughed. And I go, at some point, man, like y'all are going to be sitting at the same banquet table for all of eternity. You guys can't even see eye to eye right now, but at some point, this is all going to get taken care of when both of your feet get to sit underneath King Jesus' table and we look at each other and he turns and go, my bad. Can you, can you share that bread with me, brother? Because we will be united if we put Jesus at the center. When something else takes center, division takes place. At what point are we going to put Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sending the Spirit, the center of our communities, because the world will know whether we love him or we don't, based on putting Jesus at the center. Do we think that Jesus knew that we were going to have trouble? Oh, man, he prayed for us. Man, he, he bled for us in those moments, praying, asking us, to, asking his Father to give us the power to be unified. That's the kind of power that I'm talking about, about unity, the second kind of power that I'm talking about is the power to say no to sin. A couple of weeks ago, I read out of 1 John 3, and it says if you continue to sin, um, then you are a, uh, a child of the devil. 
And then somebody burst out. I don't know what they said in the moment, but they texted me later, and it was, dang, dog, because it's rough. That if you continue to sin, then you're a child of the devil. But if you don't sin, then you're a child of, the, of our Father in heaven. He's not saying, do you ever not, oh, like, 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 struggle in sin. It's, do you give yourself habitually to a lifetime and a lifestyle of sin? I'm not talking about struggle. I'm talking about habitually practicing See, for the life of the believer, we have the spirit inside of us that gives us the power to say no to that lifestyle and yes to following Jesus. You can't do both. First John is very clear. It can't be both. I can't just go, go do whatever else I'm going to go do and then show up and be like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Those two things are incompatible. That's what the whole last four sermons of the Sermon on the Mount were all about. But instead, Jesus has put his, his spirit in us to empower us to say no to sin. Look at what Romans 8 says in verse 13. We've read, we've read all kinds of Romans 8 today. Let me give you one more. For if you live according to the flesh, that's, again, continuing to sin, giving way to all the things that are fleshy, that are sinful in your nature, you will die. Paul says it too. But if by the Spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. You have the power to kill whatever sin is plaguing you. He's already given it to you. Will you grasp it? Will you lean into his presence? He, he's given it to you generously. Will you say no to those fleeting pleasures of gossip and slander and pornography, and alcoholism, and dabbling. Will you say no to these things? Because you are God's temple. When you think about that. When you think about sin, and you think about being God's temple, could you imagine going into a holy place? As a kid, going into the Catholic church was a place where you don't do the same things that you did in the parking lot. You go into the Catholic church growing up and like, I remember my stepsister at the time cussed in church and she was like, ooh, I can't do that in here. And I was like, yeah, you can't do that in here. God might strike you dead. Out in the parking lot, you can cuss all you want. Come into a sacred space, no more cussing. That's the kind of differentiation that God is trying to help us see when he says you're his temple. Don't be messing that up. Live holy lives. Pursue Him by the power of the Spirit. Not because you're trying to earn God's favor, because God's already given you all His favor in Christ Jesus. Let us be holy. Let us live holy lives. Let us be set apart and pursue the pleasure that is found in God looking at us and saying, oh man, well done. You could have given in, but you didn't by God's presence, by His power. Third thing. Third P, not just his presence, not just his power, but also proclamation. God's spirit bears witness. He proclaims to us some things that are true that we need to hear again and again. Long ago, proclaiming God's word were reserved for prophets alone. Pentecost releases God's word into every believer. If you remember the pillar of fire, it was one pillar. It was one symbol of God's power against his enemies. And, and, a, and not just a power, but also their protection for God's people. And now we see in tongues a mystery, which whole denominations have been started on. But what are they? 
Well, in context, verses 4 through 6, if we were to read it again, it says this, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, the sound of the multitude came together, the sound of the wind, the sound of, of people proclaiming in different tongues, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own tongue, in his own language. So we start thinking about tongues. You might think to yourself, well, I don't have the gift of tongues. If you can speak multiple languages, you have the gift of tongues. Like God has granted you that. I remember being in Peru and I was there for 10 days and I had taken like four and a half years of Spanish in, in, in college. I remember being in Peru on a mission trip and I really couldn't speak all that good of Spanish even after all the schoolwork that I could do. And I was there for again about 10 days. It's like day eight and my dude was right next to me and all of a sudden I could speak Spanish to him. Now, Maybe it was my training. Maybe it was being there for eight days and immersed in the language and I was starting to pick it up. Or maybe God gave me a temporary little gift to share the gospel with my dude so that he could get saved and go down front and live his life differently. I don't know which one it is. I know that whatever it was, that God granted me the ability to speak that guy's language in that moment. And that's what we see in Acts 2. That this tongues of other nations were, were plain uh, fishermen and women didn't speak their languages otherwise, would speak the languages of the people for the purpose of mission, for the purpose of bringing the mighty works of God to the people in the world around them. And so I have to ask, what is your tongue doing? Does it proclaim the mighty works of God to those that are around you? Because I'll bet you, you speak their language. I'll bet you they can understand you. Do our tongues bring to bear, do they bear witness to the world the mighty works of God about Jesus? His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Or do they do something different? We have to evaluate that. We have to see what is my tongue doing? How am I proclaiming God's power? You see, Pentecost helps us see what was seen in the pillar of, for the nation of Israel was now being poured out in each person for the sake of the nations, not just Israel. God's mighty works, God's good news, his power, his mighty works, and his protection of the gospel is now of now being purchased by Jesus, indwelled by the Spirit, and kept for all eternity was now being proclaimed to the nations for really the first time. The nations are here. They're in your backyard. They're your neighbor next to you. They're across the street. They're in the cubicle next to you. They're everywhere here in the Houston Metroplex. What is our tongue doing? You see, the Spirit shows us that God is, speak, is a speaking God. He is a bearing witness kind of God. And if we see this symbol of God speaking through his tongue, we will start to see that the, bear witness, that the Spirit bears witness about Jesus. If we were to read this, I don't have the time, but John 15 says that when the Helper comes, He's going to bear witness about me. One of the main things that the Spirit does for you is that He testifies in your life the goodness of God. And when we forget that, He's proclaiming to you the glory that is found in being found by Jesus. The Spirit, the, the Spirit bears witness about Jesus. The Spirit bears witness to us. I want you to hear this one, though. Romans 8 again, verse 15 and 16. Look what the Spirit does to you, believer. But He doesn't do to non-believers, but He does to you, believer. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear of sin. 
But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness, testifies to you with your spirit that you are a child of God. Friday night we had this worship gathering, right, in a different um, church building. And I was looking across the room. I've never worshipped in the round before. Have you ever worshipped in the round? Um, you don't look at people's back of their heads. You look at their facial expressions. And I was looking around the room, and I was not judging anyone, just so you know. But I was looking around the room, and I saw, like, some orphans that I know their story. Um, and I thought, man, in this place, are they on level ground? No other place in the world that God, that, in all of like, creation except for the church, are they on level ground? Because we're all orphans. We were all orphans. We all had that, uh, the feeling of, man, I have no purpose. I have no care. I have no one to provide for me. That's who we were apart from Jesus's spirit of adoption making us whole and new. It's in the church that the orphan in, in like biologically and the orphan spiritually come together. It's only here that they, they find that home because now we all have the same experience. We only have one true father taking care of us. And the spirit of adoption testifies to our heart, you are God's daughter. You're God's son. You may lose your way. You may act like a heathen, but you are his. He's purchased you. He's brought you near. The Spirit proclaims. He proclaims about Jesus. He proclaims to us. And he also bears witness and proclaims to the world. We read this verse earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, you're a missionary talking to a friend of mine this week over lunch, and he was telling me about um, some of the difficulties he was having with a coworker. And I said, okay, cool, like, I'm, I'm happy to hear your difficulties with your coworker. How would it change how you deal with your coworker if you realized that they don't know Jesus and you were put there to share the gospel with them? And he just looked at me, and literally his posture goes, and I kept talking for a minute to let him recover. And he goes, I don't like it. And that's how I know God wants me to do it. <laughs> Isn't that the way sometimes? You know our flesh is battling in that moment. And we know it. If the Spirit is in us, He will convince us what we want is probably wrong and what He wants. We've got to be on mission. So we go to our workplace. We go to the softball fields. We go to the, gym, the gymnasium. Wherever we're going as missionaries not just as co-workers or parents, as missionaries. Fourth and finally, not just that God's spirit and on Pentecost means that he is present in his people, not just with them, in them. He gives us a power that we previously didn't have to be united and also to, and also to defeat sin. He gives us a proclamation, that's the tongue, right? That we now have a, a working tongue to speak the native tongue of the people around us to bring God's mighty works on their life. But finally, God's Spirit gives birth to the church, His people. His people. You see, this is the birthday of the church some however many years ago in Acts chapter 2. 
And although most of our attention has been put on the first half of Acts chapter 2, I got myself like wondering, what is, what is this kind of, of power and presence and proclamation? What does it produce in the people of God? And if you keep reading in Acts chapter 2, you find what it produces. So Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. This is what it says about the people of God, the first church. Now I want you to read this and I want you to think, is this what I'm looking for in a church? Is this what I'm trying to create in this church? Let's read. And they devoted themselves. That word for devoted means basically cling closely to. Like just everything else goes away. We become devoted to these things. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What we know is the scriptures, God's word. Do you devote yourselves to God's word? And the fellowship. Do you devote yourselves? We'll talk about this fellowship word next week. Do you devote yourselves to mutual interdependence? Boy, those are not in the Declaration of Independence. Mutual interdependence. Fellowship. To the breaking of bread. You're thinking, dude, that was a Baptist church back in. Like, they just ate all the time. No, the breaking of the bread. Not just the sacrament, but what they knew is love feast. They would come together and they would just celebrate the love of God together. And they would have feasts over a great picture of God's kingdom that he promises. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread and they were devoted to the prayers. Are we devoted? Are we clinging closely to prayer, to dependence upon God, of abiding in Him? And look what happens. Look at the fruit of this kind of devotion, friends. The kind of devotion that, you, again, you're probably not putting on a flyer to send out on a church plant that we're going to be devoted to God's Word and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. But what kind of people does this produce? Verse 43, And awe, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. There's that unity again. And they were selling their possessions. They were generous and their belongings, and they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. There was benevolence, there was generosity, there was kindness, and day by day, devoted, they attended the temple together, and again, the breaking of the bread in their homes. Temple and home. Sunday gathering, neighborhood group. That's in our language. That's what they were doing day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread uh, in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't you want to see people get saved? Don't you want to see people experience the presence of God himself? They want to see people get empowered to now what was, what was once strangling their lives of addiction, of all kinds of things. They get freed up from that and they just walk away in a day. Wouldn't that be amazing to see? You want to see them then proclaim the goodness of God to their neighbors freely without like, oh, I guess they told me I'm a missionary and so I guess I'm going to try this out. Like they go out because they just see their neighbor and they go, man, 
Love you, bro, because Jesus loves me. In some form or fashion, that's not weird. Don't we want to see this get birthed in us? I do. I stay up a lot of nights. I get up a lot of mornings thinking, how can we experience this as a people? How can that be spread out, not just for people on staff or elders or deacons or neighborhood groups, but for every man, woman, and child to experience this kind of love and life by the presence of the Spirit? And here's what I've come up with. Here's my greatest strategy on how you all can do this. You ready? We've got to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to mutual interdependence, fellowship, to missional meals, eating together, sharing God's story of what he's doing in us and for us, and the prayers. So let's pray. Let's ask God for help.